when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, Donald Trump said some crazy stuff, but what what does it matter? The people that could deliver him the nomination want the crazy, and everyone else can't seem to stop him. So how do you solve a problem like Donald Trump? And who caused it? We've got guests who will do their best. Wisconsin Republican Congressman Reed Ribble and writer and podcaster Anna Marie Cox. Meanwhile, Democrats Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders seem to want to have a serious debate over the future of the Democratic Party. So why doesn't the Democratic Party want anyone to watch it? Can Clinton's plan to rein in Wall Street immunize her against the charges that she's under their thumb? Also, Martin O'Malley will be there. Finally, Congress needs to pass an omnibus funding bill to keep government from shutting down again. Last time we did this, some big banks used leverage to make off with some of your money and paid no price for this extortion. So guess what's happening this time? Just guess. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Samantha Lockman, and Shaheen Nasirabor. But here's what happened first. Hey, everybody. Once again, it is Friday, I suppose. That's when this happens. And it's the So That Happened podcast with your pals. I'm one of your pals, Jason Lincolns. I'm the editor of Eat the Press. Thank you. Thank you for the... Thank you for... Yes, thank you. That was very Woo! nice. That was a fast call. Uh, we have a really great we have a really great show for you today, and I'm here with two of my best friends in the world. Aw. Yeah, you're my best friends. You're my old friends. Um, I do this shit with you every week. <laughs> I know. Well, not doing it with every with me every week, only on special weeks. We have Samantha Lockman. Hey. You might remember her from Canada. And we have Zach Carter. Hey! You might remember him from that painful thing you endured. What did I do? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so we're uh, we have a week ahead of us. This is this is this is one of those odd ones where we take so that happened and we force it into the future tense because we're weird and we don't give a shit about time. We can defeat time. Yep. With our metaphysical powers. temporal reality and Arthur Delaney's out sick, so we can like completely bre- break the fourth wall on time. It's Thursday, maybe, but maybe it's not. Who knows? It could be Saturday. Whenever you're listening to it, that's when it is. Now is now, man. You know. Probably nothing has changed by the time they're Probably listening. Probably not. Now is now, and now is also then, and then is now. So <laughs> what's coming up in a week's time is we have two debates. Um, because because God has decided to punish us. So <laughs> God being the DNC. Yes, and the RNC. Um, yeah, but the oh, DNC God. in particular. DNC in particular. This we're is gonna, a very bad deity. This yeah, we're going to focus. So we're focusing on the front runners in each party. A little bit later, we'll talk about... Um, the the um, congealed ball of raven shit that is running the who's <laughs> at the top of the <laughs> by congealed ball of raven shit Jason means Donald Trump for right. those of you who are not not following closely yes and so now we're going to talk about the the Democratic debate and Hillary Clinton Democratic debates on Saturday Saturday December nineteenth because the DNC wants Hillary Clinton to win 
Yes. It's who's, really... Who's going to, like... That's the conspiracy theory, anyway. This is what I wonder is how cynical you have to be about your party and your party's ideas that you don't want anyone to watch them debating. Because <laughs> they don't... It's not like they look bad when they're debating. They actually look pretty good, yeah. I think. Yeah. And it's like, we're going to put this on to Saturday, December 19th, when the entire nation is wasted at their holiday party, eating their Franks and grape jelly <laughs> chili. The amazing cocktail Frank recipe. <laughs> Which I just learned about. Yes. So no one will watch this debate. I just changed your life. Uh, I'm disgusted. and I'm going nowhere near that. So we will, we will not be at a holiday party. We will be watching the d- Democratic debate on Saturday, December actually, 19th. I actually, um, I actually signed a deal where I only had to cover the last weekend debate. So I won't be oh, watching the wow. Democratic debate. So it's glad we're talking about it. Um, yeah, it, it is kind of curious because, like you said, the Donald Trump has lent this weird hallucinatory aspect to the Republican debates where you never know what the fuck's going to happen or who he's going to insult or or what path he's going to take everyone down. Or how, how all the other people respond to open fascist demagoguery from Donald Trump. Will, right. will, will they say, well, you know, I would like to be a, a kinder, gentler fascist, or I don't want to criticize this fascist next to me. He's a nice man, which is what happens all the time at every debate. They refuse to criticize the guy. It's crazy. Meanwhile, on the Democratic side, there's a legitimately interesting thing going on that liberals... And uh, from from the from the center out to the far left, should be paying, paying attention to because you have a genuinely institutional supporting candidate in Hillary Clinton, who whose belief is that the system is mostly working; it just needs a few tweaks, and a sort of revolutionary style candidate in Bernie Sanders, who believes the system has failed and needs to be replaced wholesale. That's a pretty cool debate, and the two of them typically go back and forth with each, with each other, a thoughtful classy manner. They seem to understand that there's a certain amount of reverence that should be had toward this. So the Democrats do look good comparatively when they're debating compared to the Republicans. But for some reason, the DNC doesn't want you to ever see that. So, yeah. I mean, in the number of viewers tells the story, like each Republican debate brought in like what, like 24 million people, 23 million people, yeah. like crazy record smashing numbers. But the Democratic debates so was only like, you know, yeah. Way, way less. And obviously this one will be it'll and then it'll be embarrassing for the party because Republicans will be able to say, like, oh look, only two million people watch your debate. Okay. That looks bad and, for and, you. And, <laughs> I, I also want to point out this strategically, just the management here from the DNC, even if you are trying to put a fix in for Hillary Clinton, this is the worst way to do it. Yeah. Because all this does is result in a lot of primetime television for Republican candidates who then become celebrities, and let's face it, people vote. I mean, one of the reasons Donald Trump is popular in the Republican Party is because he's a guy they know. Yeah. They've seen him on TV before. The fewer times you put your candidates on TV to present their ideas, the fewer chances you have for that candidate to like make that pitch to the country. And I mean, particularly with Hillary Clinton, it's not like she's a bad debater. She does pretty well in these things usually. Yeah, she's good. Unbelievably bad strategy from the DNC on this. And totally. Should I mean and Obviously, there's some dissent within the ranks of the Democratic Party. Well, you know, I, it's it's funny. I read what passed for the DNC autopsy from the 2014 elections, and uh, they it, it it wasn't much. It wasn't as nearly as searing or as reaching as what the uh, RNC did with their own um, uh, autopsy. But there's still, I think, too much of a sense that the Democrats think they can skate, uh, pointing out that the other side is crazy 
and not filling the space with ideas. And this debate strategy reflects it. They believe, hey, the more Americans see how dumb the Republicans are, uh, they'll turn to us. But us are a bunch of people who keep themselves sequestered and out of sight and keep whatever. I don't know if they even have ideas beyond what's been debated, uh, but they keep the, keep their ideas hidden and off the shelf and out of reach. And we're going to go, but we're going to talk about something that, that did happen in terms of that. Hillary Clinton actually did uh, in a, in a news cycle that, that kind of, it was against the run of play as far as the news cycle goes. We were all talking about terrorism, and Hillary Clinton put an op-ed out about her plan to rein in Wall Street. Uh, so what do we think about that plan? Well, I don't even know if Samantha and I agree on this. Uh, so Cool, let's have a fight. Uh, well, no, <laughs> we, we may agree, we may disagree. I, I find her plan to be, um, look, all of these policy proposals that Democrats are putting out they have no chance of passing because there's going to be a Republican Congress right. at the end of whenever these people are elected. Or a Republican they, House, right. at least. There, 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 there will be a way that makes it very difficult for something to be implemented. Right, right, right. So to some extent, this is a signaling game for, for the public to say, this is where I stand. Here's how I think about the world. Not so much to say, here are the policies that I will actually implement. And so what I've found interesting about Hillary Clinton's pr- proposal, and her op-ed basically rehashes a proposal she's put out before, is that she's, you know, she's taking a couple of ideas. They're not terrible ideas. Like, she wants to tax high-frequency trading. High-frequency trading <laughs> Elizabeth is... Elizabeth Warren, in fact, supports parts of this plan. Yes. Well, look, there's there's really nothing in the plan that's not worth supporting. The plan has, mm, has plenty... I have one thing. The plan has plenty of good stuff. But what it doesn't do is change the financial system in any significant way. Right. This and is it, an op-ed in the New York Times yeah. from earlier this week. We should have said yeah. it. Yeah. And, so. she, and she was she was giving a speech about it, right? She gave a, and I believe you covered that, right? Yeah, she's been well. She's been rolling out each one of those things sort of separately. So some of this stuff was new stuff, and some of it she's been talking about for a while. So yeah, but for the most part, this is she she is not talking about fundamentally changing the financial system, um, and she and she kind of goes out of her way to say. In the op-ed in particular, she says, you know, if we just look at the banks and, and break up the banks, then we're not going to, to deal with all the problems in the shadow banking sector. Right. We're not going to deal with AIG and Lehman Brothers. And this is a straw man argument because people who say break up the banks, they don't mean only banks that are chartered as commercial banks mm-hmm. that are regulated by the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. That is that is a very narrow definition of what banking is. Nobody who wants to break up the banks says, you know what? AIG should be allowed to do whatever they want, and that will be my plan. Right, right, that right. That makes sense. So she, she is going out of her way to say, I don't want to, I, I don't want to deal with the obvious antitrust problems in the banking sector. Um, and, and, then, and then by saying, I don't want to break, break up the banks, she then just says, and by the way, I also am going to regulate these other companies that are, that are dangerous, but I won't break them up. Um, and then she tries to wear that as like some badge of toughness for Wall Street, which I find basically deceptive. Um, she, she, she's claiming to do, do something tough and people who understand finance can look at it and say, oh, she's not actually going to change things very much. Right. It's, well, yeah, I, I think it's interesting, your argument, because it's sort of like she's she's portraying this is Glass-Steagall, which her husband repealed in 1999, right? Mm-hmm. So which, you know, separated the commercial investment activities of banks for decades. Glad the wall. Okay. <laughs> There's no separation after it repealed it. Right, yeah. exactly. And um, so she's, yeah, she's portraying it as this mutually exclusive thing. Like, oh, if we reinstated Glass-Steagall, we wouldn't be able to do all these other things. And, and this isn't, and she also says, well, like, this isn't what caused the financial crisis, so we shouldn't reinstate it. But there's all these other good arguments to make about why it is a good idea to to reinstate it, so it's it's the idea that it did not cause the financial crisis is 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 the idea that like you know the big bang didn't cause the financial crisis like right. yeah like lots of stuff <laughs> causality happens yeah, like, yeah, yeah but I mean look Citibank 
failed in the financial crisis. It completely fell apart and it got bailed out. Citibank was the bank that lobbied to get Glass-Steagall repealed so that it could Mm. become bigger. So you can say Glass-Steagall was not the fundamental driving force, but there's no way you can argue that things didn't get worse because these banks were doing mega mergers with other investment companies and mixing up their stuff. It it, it just doesn't make sense. I'm sure I pointed this out out before on the show, but Sandy Weil, who was the head of Citibank at the time, they were lobbying against Glass-Steagall and who for years bragged about being the guy who broke Glass-Steagall. Shattered it. (coughs) Shattered Glass-Steagall. He's now gone on record thinking that, you know, there should be some sort of firewall between commercial investment banks. I don't know why we don't have one. I'm Sandy Weil, super genius. <laughs> um, there is a thing, actually, that I find objectionable in Hillary Clinton's financial plan. Da, 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 da. Let's hear it. Let's okay, hear it. And it's the risk fee plan. To me, mm. uh, to me, the, it's, a, it's one of those ideas, much like, hey, people on the no-fly list shouldn't have guns. That sounds great until you dig into and start thinking about it. To me, the, the whole idea that uh, the banks are going to pay into a risk fee pay a risk fee to the government, I feel like banks are going to come to think of that as capitalization in another name. That is to say that they're paying the risk fee. You so know, they can they do keep, whatever they yeah, want. Yeah, so let's get, let's get loose and loose with the risk. I feel like that's the wrong message to be sending in an age where it's so hard to break too big to fail banks down into something that's small enough to fail. And I think that Clinton in, in, in suggesting this risk fee plan is, is promising something. It's a real false dawn to my mind. I think that I think that's going to be taken the wrong way. And I think that God help us if we ever get in the position where what happened in 2008 happens again. But I think a lot of people, people are going to be clamoring. What about the risk fee? What about the risk fee? Oh, well, guess what? That was the thing that incentivized this new round of gauche. Well, gambling. look, here, here's the deal. If, if you, you did a risk fee that was really high and really severe and said, look, if, if you have if you have if your assets are more than three percent of the American economy or something, then you have to pay a jillion dollars every year. Make it so bad. Make that fee so punishing that banks voluntarily break themselves up and say, you know, I don't want to do that. I don't want to pay that fee. Mm-hmm. It makes more sense for me to be split into smaller pieces. And we'll, our shareholders of these multiple companies will make more money than a shareholder of one company. Then that's a good plan. The thing is. If that's your ultimate plan to break up the banks, why wouldn't you just say, I want to break up the banks? Right. You say you want to do a risk fee because you don't want that to happen. You're saying, you know. Or you want it to be just a slap on like something really small that wouldn't change their behavior in any way. Exactly. Yeah. Which and, tends to be what we do to them, is, <laughs> is we have these little slaps, you know, ooh, bat, you were bad, don't do that again. Right. Don't want another slap. And the banks are like, I don't want another slap. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely yeah. don't slap me again. Yeah, and her plan is, is just proposing stuff that Democrats have floated before, like legislation they've introduced. And as Zach said, it's never going anywhere. So I guess I, I totally agree with that point. I don't disagree with you at all. So. Right. Same team. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. See, no fight. Community, community of trust. So let's move, on. let's move on to the GOP debate, which was happening sooner than Ugh. Democrats. Tuesday. Tuesday. On a weeknight when a people weeknight. will watch it. Yep. yep, people will watch it. And by the way, they've added another debate to the schedule the RNC has. So. In January. Yeah, so... Um, uh, it's funny the RNC seems to think that having more debates is good because they keep adding them. It's weird, weird that they it, think that getting their candidates on that, TV is going to help And them. that goes against their autopsy where they said <laughs> we need to do fewer debates and they keep adding them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the, the idea behind adding debates is trying to give people a chance to reassert themselves against Donald Trump running roughshod over the party. Um, we have a lot of we, – we're talking about Donald a lot in this podcast, so I want to try to talk about – um, some of the people who've positioned themselves into place. Uh, I think that we can definitively say now that the non-Trump candidate 
on in the catbird seat is Ted Cruz, right? Yeah. No doubt. And that's why he won't say anything negative about Trump. Right, right. Because so, he's trying to make Trump supporters <clears throat> come to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's I got to say, I've, I've watched a lot of watched a lot of Republican primaries and watched a lot of Republican primary debates, and they're not actually a place for the profile and courage to thrive. <laughs> no, they're not. I mean, did Ted, uh, Ted, Rick Perry, uh, it, was, it was four years ago that Rick Perry tried to stand up for what it means to be the governor of border state and having to have a responsible, humane immigration platform. It's very courageous. He took a right to his opponents, and he got his eyes dug out with spoons for his trouble. So Ted Cruz, in, in, in not objecting... That was incredibly graphic. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's literally what happened. No, I'm just kidding. It's figuratively what happened. Um, but... He said at one point, he said, if, if you want to deny kids college, like kids who just came here through no fault of their own college uh, access to college, then I think you don't have a heart. And he got booed for it yeah, on stage. So it Ted was, Cruz, I'm not surprised that he's saying, oh, well, you know, Donald Trump, I don't really have an objection to his craziness. Uh, but it does does create an opportunity maybe for somebody else. What, what 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 do you have to do? We've seen so many people just flop and fail on this stage. Rand Paul went from being the most interesting man in politics, according to Time. So, so angry. Probably, probably don't Time Magazine. I don't know if they would know interesting if it came up in in, in you know. Fill <laughs> in, in the blank. If it jumped up and bit him. But he's, <laughs> he like he completely fell apart. Jeb Bush completely, I think Jeb Bush's, his campaign, I've said it before, I think it's one of the historic cock-ups in campaign history. Definitely. Spent so so many millions of dollars to do worse than when they were at, where they were at months ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's one of the things, like, look, money in politics is destroying everything, and it's really bad, and it's a huge problem, and it's corruption. But it is also funny when people, rich people, spend lots and lots and lots of yeah. money on a candidate like Jeb Bush, who is a complete failure. Jeb, Jeb Bush you know spent, they lost their money. Jeb Bush spent months, like, officially not being a candidate to raise all this money with his super PAC. Like, what, they raised, like, more than $100 million yeah. or something like yeah. that? And I they, think Mike Murphy sits up in the office and just lights it on fire. Right. There was a great story today about how they spent, like, fi- half of that money already, and he's, like... Uh, significant, Six, yeah, percent, something significantly like that. lower in the polls than he was before. Yeah. So that's kind of funny. Like it's a nice irony of the whole thing I, that makes us feel better. I always about say about campaign finance. I always say about the primary season is that they are a smorgasbord for failure junkies. The only bad thing about the primary season is that eventually someone succeeds, and that's the worst. <laughs> but until then, we're so excited like the about unha- when people are going to drop out. But this primary has been amazing. Like. I drink the tears of Jeb Bush fans <laughs> like it was tap water, and it's so delicious. I, it's 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 stunning. These are the these are the people that funded, who came around and and in the old way of doing campaign finance, put put his brother into into office. Yeah, and they're. They've completely lost the but look, this year. Here's the thing: the reason they're getting their butts kicked this year is because they've also fueled this incredibly angry, hostile, vaguely white nationalist. Not vaguely white nationalist, like fairly explicitly, explicitly white, white, na- nationalist. white nationalist. White nationalist base <laughs> in the Republican Party. And Donald Trump is 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 just feeding off of that. And so people have been saying he's he's gonna he's gonna goof up, he's gonna say something that's too extreme. Nothing at this point. For that for that core of Republican voters, they don't care. They want to hear him say nasty stuff because they agree with it. And that's what the party has been stoking for decades now. 
So the idea that someone is going to be able to counter him by standing up and saying, you know what, I'm a good Republican, but damn it, I just can't take all this racist crap that Donald Trump is spewing anymore. That doesn't work because a lot of the Republican Party is just really into racist crap. That is just a clear fact that Donald Trump is laying bare by his continued popularity, despite opening his campaign by calling Mexicans rapists and then continuing this week saying we should ban Muslims, even if they're American citizens, from coming back into the Well, into the they're like the independents who vote in a general for a Republican like may like someone standing up to him now, but it's not the people who are voting in Iowa and New yeah, Hampshire yeah. or whatever. They're, so they're, it's just a structural. It just depends on that. That's dry powder yeah. as, far as, the, <laughs> as far as what could happen right now. These right. primaries are happening and... And the people that would normally restore sense to this hot dish, they're not they're not showing up until November. And then God knows where it's they too go. late. And yeah. so these debates, there's an opportunity for people to say, hey, we're not cool with your fascist demagoguery, Donald Trump. And I will give you I'll bet there is one guy who tries to do that on stage. I bet he gets booed and nobody else does it after that. It'll that is my K- prediction. Well, like Kasich kind of did that last time. So it'll I'll, be him. I'll bet it's him. Yeah. yeah. All right. John Kasich. Good luck. <laughs> 
Hey, we're back, and I'm back with Zach Carter as normal. Woo! Good no, times. Don't, don't talk about the tent, Zach. I've well, you know, I've already no. come out of the tent today. I, I know, I'm, I'm out and about in the world. You know. Okay. Cool. Cool. Great. <laughs> great. And uh, thank God we have a normal human being on with us. Uh, over the phone is Shaheen Nasirapur, Huffington Post angry financial reporter, chief financial and regulatory reporter, right? Thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, what an introduction. I'm a normal human being. Isn't that great to hear about? We're, um... <laughs> we used to joke around in the office that um, Shaheen, Shaheen was so entranced by money and numbers that he had trouble dealing with the humans, and humans was always spelled with a Z in our office emails about it. I don't know if that's going to make the final podcast, but it's a way, great way to understand Shaheen. Uh, everything that doesn't make the final podcast could make the podcast of blackmail that Adriana is producing, even as we speak. So we've got a bunch of uh, interesting stuff to talk about. Zach, set the table for us. Uh, so Congress needs to pass legislation in order to prevent the federal government from shutting down. Wait, we're back to this again? This seems to happen often now. It didn't happen seven years ago, but it happens now pretty much every year. Oh, the fuck. And... Last year, there was a big, a big problem with this because nobody wanted the government to shut down, but Wall Street wanted to get subsidies for risky derivatives trading. Derivatives are the complex financial contracts at the heart of the 2008 meltdown, um, and they, wanted, they literally wanted federal government subsidies uh, for this trading, which ordinary people would think of and say, well, that's crazy. You shouldn't do that. Um, but Congress said, okay. And they put this into the bill, and then the government almost shut down because people said, hey, we can't, we can't go along with, with – you, you can't hijack this process by which the federal government gets funded. Um, Just to hand money to Wall Street right. for no good reason. So, so they can... what Wall Street learned from this was that you should do that All every the time. year. Because <laughs> it works and you get more money. Um, and, and this, but it, it, it has changed a little bit this year. And it's something I kind of want to talk with, with Shaheen about, um, it, it, the, the, provisions in the, in, in the, the, they're calling it the omnibus spending bill are, are much narrower than the provisions of subsidizing all ver- derivatives trading. It's basically a, a, a very targeted, um, subsidy at, at, at two private equity companies, Apollo Capital Management and TPG, um, that own a casino, called Caesars, which is, it's not just Caesars Palace in, in Las Vegas. It's, it's, a, it's a fairly broad casino empire all, all over the United States. Um, Render unto Caesars. Yeah, I mean, you, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of pun potential in this A lot one. of pun potential, yeah. Um, so, so what they're going to do, uh, there's, there's this provision that's being pushed now by uh, Richard Shelby and Harry Reid, which uh, w- would essentially change the 1939 Trust Indenture Act to make it easier for Apollo and TPG to exact concessions from their bondholders, people who own debt in this company, in order to just essentially let them rewrite the contract so they don't get paid what they thought they were going to get paid and, uh, and give, give shareholders much more leverage over, um, over other parties to, to debt deals going forward. And there, there are potential long-term consequences for this. But the interesting thing is that it's, it, that's not why it's being driven. It's being driven because people just want to give Apollo and TPG some money for Christmas. Um, and I guess I wanted to ask Shaheen, do you feel like, I felt like we talked about this a few months ago, and it seemed like the temperature had sort of changed in Washington about how we, how we help Wall Street just sort of arbitrarily. Um, 
but to me, it seems like there's something different here where we're, we're trying, trying, instead of messing with Dodd-Frank or something, like maybe people got the message you're not supposed to mess with Dodd-Frank and they're just trying to find other ways to do things. Like what, what do you, what do you make of it, Shaheen? You know, it's funny. We were, um, <laughs> we were, you and I were talking about this recently privately in terms of how the tide appeared to be shifting, uh, in favor of creditors and lenders in Washington, um, where, you know, you had this horrendous financial crisis. You had the Great Recession. Country still recovering very slowly. And now you have lawmakers wanting to basically turn the screws on borrowers, right, where they're making it harder for borrowers to, to basically recover from the crisis. Um, yet when it comes to companies, there's Congress is bending over backwards to give them concessions, all in the name of job creation uh, and spurring the recovery, with like no evidence that either one of those things will happen if they continue to hand out, give these corporate handouts to companies that, frankly, if they were healthy and if they were hiring, they wouldn't need special favors from Washington, right? They would be, they'd have a product or a service that people would pay for, and they could hire more folks. There'd be demand, and it would be this virtuous cycle. Instead, you have companies that are kind of on the brink of bankruptcy, like, for example, Caesars, the gaming company, or EDMC, the for-profit school chain. They go to their friends in Washington. They ask for help. There's, like, no hesitation to help them, whereas when it comes to, like, American consumers and borrowers, there's, like, no relief coming from this Congress. And the disconnect to me is striking. And... I'm almost kind of appalled by just the lack of overall attention being paid to this phenomenon. So to be clear, what this what this provision would do, essentially Caesars is on the verge of bankruptcy and the people who support it say, look, going to bankruptcy is bad and bad things can happen in bankruptcy. So we want to create a situation in which the shareholders, who in this case are private equity companies, Apollo Capital Management and TPG, um, can can work out a deal with the existing debt that the other people who own uh, own, own that debt are and and by keeping them out of bankruptcy which is a very big scary word this will prevent thousands of people from being laid off at casinos all over the country um it that that's not necessarily what happens when somebody files for bankruptcy right Shaheen? i mean something when you when you file for bankruptcy uh you're working out debt that doesn't immediately mean that your company's operations shut down right that's correct. If all a bankruptcy is, is it's a reorganization of your debt. The debt that you can pay off, there's a schedule created. You make payments. The debt that you can't pay off, your creditors will basically write it off or they'll amend the terms of those agreements. I mean, Caesars, if they were to declare bankruptcy, I'm not aware of any evidence that they would immediately shut down and thousands of Nevada jobs would be lost. But what would happen is that the shareholders would immediately take a big hit, and the shareholders in this case are Apollo Capital Management and TPG. Just to be clear, those are the two companies who are benefiting from this provision. <laughs> right. It's not like – and there's no guarantee you're going to save these jobs anyway at all. Well, look I – mean, Correct. I mean, we go back, at, we, we go back to the, the auto bailouts and the argument over who takes the haircut. <laughs> are you going to – are you going to – uh, to my mind, and I'm sorry if people think this is, you know, I'm being a Leninist here, but to my mind, I hope not. <laughs> if a big business fails, the people who take the haircut are the idiots who'd, inve who'd invested in that business. Y'all made the wrong bet. You don't punish the people who showed up to do the job. The people who showed up to do the job didn't have a chance to make a decision. They didn't have a chance to say, don't put a fucking ugly tail fin on this car. No one will buy it. They just did it because that's what they got paid to do. 
but some dipshit said, yeah, we need to make these fucking cars again and again and again, even though no one buys them. Those are the guys who obviously deserve to take the hit. And I that's, don't really have, I don't have, who, and who's, who's losing their shirt? These are all rich people. They make one bet, it goes bad. They're still allowed to make other ones. And the thing is, you, you end up, if, if they make this change to the law, you end up with a situation in which the people who make the risky bets, you know, if you, if you own equity that's, in a company, you're, that's supposed to be the risky position. The debt is supposed to be less risky. That's the thing these, 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 these young, dumb capitalists forget about. Risk, man. There's no capitalism without risk. All these people have been trying to iron out the risk for fucking years. We, the, the, the 2008 financial crisis, to my mind, happened because everyone bought this idea that they could just make money forever with no risk attached to it. And you, guess you, what? Wrong. Guess what? Wrong. I mean, Shaheen, have you ever seen this? I, every now and then, like, my, my, like, my, my hackles rise when I see someone saying, yeah, this is a great opportunity for a low-risk, high-yield investment. Um, and that that should not exist by definition in finance. If something is risky, it should you you get paid more because it's risky, and then with with the caveat that you might lose everything, <laughs> not not the other way around. Yeah, it's that simple, man. You want to keep things nice and conservative, bring risk back to capitalism. But I want to. Is there anything else going on in this omnibus that we should just be appalled at? I was just going to say this: uh, the trust and denture act thing. The the thing about Caesars and EDMC. So EDMC, education management, it's for-profit. It's a chain of for-profit schools, art institutes, Argosy, um, these institutions based out of like, it's based out of Pittsburgh. The company recently settled uh, federal and state allegations that they defrauded taxpayers out of at least $11 billion over a years-long scheme in which the government alleged they repeatedly lied to the government when they said they were not paying bonuses to their recruiters based on the number of students they enroll. This may not sound like a big deal, but I'll just break it down really quickly. For-profit schools will basically admit anyone. If you can pay, you'll get in, regardless of your qualifications, more or less. So the problem is, and the government realized this, if you pay bonuses to recruiters based on the number of people you enroll, your recruiters are just going to be incentivized to enroll anyone, regardless of their qualifications, regardless if they're going to benefit from the education, regardless if they can repay the student loan debt that they take out in order to pay for classes. You're just setting up a, so, a system where people are paid to set people up to fail, essentially. Exactly. Exactly. And there's no risk, right? Because it's, it's, the, it's the students who take on all the risk of the debt, and if they subsequently default, it's their ass on the line. The schools... You know, they'll face, like, some consequences within the first three years if borrowers default, but there are ways to gain that and to prolong it where you basically have no risk at all. So anyway, EDMC was alleged to have done this for years, and every year certifying to the federal government that they weren't doing it. Whistleblowers came forward. They said, no, this is happening. We have documents. We have evidence, et cetera. Anyway, a couple weeks ago, the government settles the case for, like, nothing, less than $100 million dollars. And EDMC will have years to pay this off. So I just, I don't, I, I want to make sure people understand this. Here's a for-profit, here's a chain of for-profit colleges accused by state, several states and the Department of Justice of defrauding taxpayers out of at least $11 billion over a years-long crime spree. And here we are a few weeks later, right after they settle those allegations, in which, you know, top government leaders called them like the poster child for for-profit college fraud and abuse. Congress is now going to change 
a law dating from the Great Depression that will make that will basically reduce that company's costs. And instead of help instead of helping the company's former students or its current students who have student loan debt and they probably have no chance of repaying it, Congress doesn't isn't trying to help them. They're trying to help this company. Well, and let's be and, clear here, Sheen, because there's th- that that is the initial maneuver. But now people are saying in Washington, maybe we can craft this this favor because the EDMC stuff is so toxic. Maybe we can do it to carve out EDMC and it'll only apply to Caesars. <laughs> and won't that be great? Uh, you know, <laughs> it's so funny because uh, people always love to make the admonition, oh, government should be run like a household. It's like our government robs households. <laughs> and, uh, our, and our government allows Wall Street to be run like a casino. It's like, if you want to take a risk, capitalize yourself, son. Don't be taken by money. Yeah, sometimes uh, we're not good at our own homespun wisdom, I guess. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, I am back with Arthur Delaney here. And we are very happy to welcome back for the third time our friend, Wisconsin Republican Reed Ribble. Uh, Congressman, how are you doing today? I'm I'm doing great. I'm sitting here in my office in Washington, D.C. and staying hard at work. Well, we've had you on the show a couple times to like dig into the weeds of policy mechanisms and how to reform them. And today we're kind of... Uh, going to stray away from that and now pull back maybe 30,000 feet in the air to talk about what's going on in sort of general politics. But it wasn't long ago that you referred to uh, reality television mogul Donald Trump as a three-year-old. This is September. Uh, so it's December now. He's he's three years and, and three months. Uh, how's he wearing on you now? Well, he hasn't learned much in three months. Um one of, the, one of the issues with his statement the other day about prohibiting the entrance of any Muslim into the country, the, words like that violate the moral conscience of a nation. You know, our first right, our first freedom in the Bill of Rights was the fact that government could not restrict the free expression of religion. One of our founding principles was based on that freedom. And the idea that we would create a religious litmus test in this country is is astoundingly offensive to me. 
Now, Congressman, Donald Trump has surely gone farther than the others with his call to ban Muslims from traveling here. But there has been talk about you know, preferences for Christian refugees, for instance, and, and uh, the tracking of Muslims in the United States. What, uh, you know, how far out is he really from the other Republicans running for president right now? Well, uh, no, I, th- I think he's quite a ways out. I think, let's, let me take the first one that you mentioned, the, uh, you know, finding some type of fast track for, for Christian Muslims that have been uh, under, under attack uh, by ISIS. When we look at uh, the video of ISIS taking 24, 25 Coptic Christian men and beheading them on a beach someplace, that also shocks our conscience. And we, we have, throughout our history, stood up for p- various people groups and religious groups that have come under attack. And we have allowed refugees to come into the country as a response to those attacks. And so I, I think you can make a bit of a distinction because of the nature and how heinous the crimes have been committed against Christians, particularly in Syria and in Libya. And so I think I, I, I can give somewhat of a pass there. I don't give a total pass, but I can give somewhat of a pass there. And um, uh, on, on the, I can't remember what the second one was. You had to re- restate the question. Oh well, I, I think I think that was the most important one we talked about. There was yeah. Ben Carson saying he wouldn't accept a Muslim president, but that was kind of like oh, yeah. not a very serious moment. Yeah. I, it wasn't. I, I serve in con- in Congress with with Muslims. Absolutely, and, and and our armed forces have thousands of Muslims defending the nation every single day. We have police officers that are Muslims protecting citizens as they go about their daily work. And um, let's just let's just talk about King Abdullah from Jordan. Uh, he has been a staunch ally in the war against ISIS. That's true. And what what are we going to say? You can't come to the U.S. and have a meeting with us? I mean, uh, we have to get <laughs> We're working so hard to get uh, people who helped us in war theaters as translators over here, protect them for protect them from what could happen to them if they were found out to have helped us. Uh, That's so, correct. So it's a lot. Yeah, it's it's a, that was a very I have to say that was a. It was a very strong denunciation. Uh, no minced words there. I, I, one of the things that I keep coming back to is way, way back, and this might have been, this might have been an idea that Reince Priebus had that felt good and 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 and, and sounded good at the time because there was a moment where Donald Trump was threatening to to brook out and and run as an independent. Uh, it could be a uh, bluff. It may not be. But Reince Priebus had all the candidates sort of swear fealty to one another. We will support uh, this man if he becomes president. I know that you've said you won't. I wonder if, if this was a big mistake. If instead of locking Donald Trump to a path to be a Republican, he's locked too many Republicans on a path to being Trump. Well, yeah, it, po- possibly. But I, I'm still... And I, and I would say, I think I can say this with a lot of confidence. I do not believe that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee. Now, I could see him running as an independent, and he's kind of reneged on his own agreement not to do that, where he said he would, he's still going to consider it. You know, it's always, well, depending how they treat me and what have you. And so he, he wants to create the rule system that he wants to create. Um, whether it was a mistake for them to do that or not, I don't think it's a mistake for any political party to say, listen, if you're going to be running to be the, the senior leader of our party, you have to be a Republican, you know, and you have, you have to commit to not running against Republicans. But you do rule out supporting him if he did somehow become the nominee. I agree oh, with yeah. you. There, there, 
Yeah, I, listen, my, my, first, um, my first oath is to the Constitution of the United States. Uh, Donald Trump has taken positions contrary to that document, so I could not support him and uphold my oath. He seems unfamiliar with the Constitution. He does. Uh, but also he seems unfamiliar with uh, some basic things about Republican politics, uh, you know, religion. And libertarianism are our core traits of uh, conservatism. And, you know, why hasn't his total lack of any libertarian or religious tendencies dragged him down? It, or, or will it as this primary drags on? Well, I think as you look at the size of the field, I think that's part of, the, part of his mystique is that the size of the field is so large that Republicans have divvied their votes up that that 65% that don't support Donald Trump are supporting somebody else right now. And as that field starts to thin out and, and it, it starts to get serious as we get closer to election days and uh, caucus days in Iowa and in New Hampshire and then on to Super Tuesday and what have you, you're going to start to see that thin out and you're going to see the, what I believe are the real leaders that will emerge uh, and ultimately become the nominee. That's kind of my guess, but he, he has defied gravity for sure. Well, you know, it was it was your it was a fellow Wisconsin Republican, Scott Walker, uh, when he dropped out of the race. Uh, his parting words were kind of an admonition of sorts uh, to the rest of the field he was leaving behind to follow him out of the field. If to to if you were if you were like him, down low in the polls without a realistic shot at winning the nomination, to sort of self extract yourself from the field. And allow one or two, I don't, for the lack of a better word, we'll call them traditional or establishment candidates. Let more of these voting support accrue to uh, one or two candidates who could then better mount a real campaign against Donald Trump. Those may have been the words of wisdom in this race. From uh, they, they certainly were. Uh, they certainly foreshadowed what's going on right now, and I think you can see it in the numbers. Um, Donald Trump has kind of capped out. He's, he hasn't moved really much above that 30% number, and he's kind of just stayed right there. On occasion, he'll dip down a little bit or go up a little bit. But he's, he, his supporters are firm with him, but they're locked there, and he hasn't been able to expand his reach, whereas other candidates, whether it was Ben Carson, uh, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, they've, they've all have, are getting their moments to, uh, to make a run at it. It's important to remember that all Trump's really got is a plurality of half the electorate. But what, you know, assuming he does eventually flame out somehow, which I, I think is a, a smart assumption still, uh, what, do you, what about those voters? Are, are they just fans of reality TV who weren't paying attention to p Republican politics earlier? Or are, are we going to have this new phenomenon in American politics with this really strong white nativist voting bloc? Well, I don't, I don't, I, I don't think so. I, I think what you're seeing a little bit with his followers is that these followers have a certain amount of fear factor in them. Uh, they're, they're clearly dissatisfied with Washington, D.C., and they're very dissatisfied with President Obama. And so um, they're moving as far away from those positions as they possibly can get. And that that, in effect, is Donald Trump. He's the anti-establishment um, or anti-system-based um, candidate. And, and they're kind of having uh, a, a good time being in that space. But at some point, 
you have to get down to the actual system of governing. And uh, I believe that most voters are going to think long and hard before they, they mark a box in that ballot box. And uh, like you, I don't think it will ultimately be Mr. Trump as the nominee. But this is happening in tandem with some other things that clearly affect it, namely these terror attacks. And we have seen public support for actually sending combat troops to the Middle East rise to a majority level. And it seems likely to me that the things are related. Do you, do you think this is just a moment or is, is politics changing more permanently because of uh, Trumpism? I think they're two different questions, quite frankly, because on, on, on the first time, the first way you phrased it, you talked about the nativist nature of, of kind of Donald Trump's predominantly white support. And then here you talked uh, and you brought in a broader um, view of what does the, the war on terror look like in 2015 and 2016, and do we need to be more engaged internationally to defeat it? And I think they're two different things. I think they can a bit feed on each other. But you can talk to, and I've got members on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, good friends of mine that are Democrats, that are saying we have to be more engaged in this war on terror and, and uh, wanting to, to use our military in a more aggressive nature. Um, and so it's not just um, kind of this nativist group of folks that uh, you might at first uh, blush think it is. Do you think Congress is going to get a get in on this and vote on a war authorization. I, I, I believe you are somebody who's uh, amenable to that idea, but it seems like it won't happen. Well, I, I, think, I think it could happen. I think that what happened in San Bernardino could, in fact, be a, a game changer to provide the president with an authorization to, to use military force. Uh, we're using some military force already in Syria, but he's doing it absent an authorization. But, but clearly... Um, there is a sense in the country that things aren't right, that there's more risk here. And should there be another attack like we had in San Bernardino or even prior to that, uh, if our, if our uh, um, allied partners in Europe are, are really engaging like we're seeing the French and now the Germans do, I think you'll see an uptick of U.S. involvement. All right. Well, uh, Congressman, thank you for being with us. Uh, we really look forward to you being back, and maybe maybe the next time you come back, uh, we'll, there'll be a little bit more of a sort of rational frame on the race. Yeah, we hope so. Thanks much. Hey guys, we'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here. To thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create 
and inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make there it a we reality. we are back. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been Zach such Carter. a tremendously oh, good, boy. positive so influence great to be getting out of the every yeah. week. The <laughs> now, where I live. you can help other people <laughs> find out about this work. show. Ooh, if you are helping to have you back. Sleep. If yeah, you are an I'm iTunes sure user, please look for our show. And we're so happy Subscribe to have... If you haven't. And use iTunes for the third time on our show. And the first time in the studio to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show. The original Wonkat is written for every magazine ever created. So head on out to iTunes. That's right. The stars and politicians, and uh, most recently, Jackson Galaxy. Who's dope as hell. You got to interview yeah. Carrie Brownstein, and I was so envious of I, you. I cannot talk much more about that. <laughs> Wow. Okay, maybe I'm not envious of you. I always thought she was the coolest well, I, person. She in the is world. the coolest person, but I, I'll, tell, you know, I'll put it this way. Um, like, I walked away from that hour long interview feeling like she was, I, I still felt like she was much cooler than I am. Mm. Oh, we want to talk a little bit about um, the, the captain of our American garbage scowl. Uh, <laughs> Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Still pretty much leading in the polls. Uh, there have been a few tiny seismic shifts in certain polls. I think Ted Cruz got up on him in Iowa, and that caused him to unleash his latest repost, right? Uh, which was to prevent Muslims and Muslim Americans from entering the country, which is kind of weird because there are a lot of Muslim Americans <laughs> in the military. He did wind up. He he wound up saying, "If you're in the military, that's okay." Oh, good. Yeah, he said it was okay if it was his friends too. Did he say you know all his friends? Yeah. Right. So yeah. meanwhile, I have at least one Muslim former colleague on the campaign trail, and one Muslim colleague in our office. Uh, who I think is hopefully coming back from Canada today and will make it into the United <laughs> States. Um, anyway, this has been uh, this has been something of a, a turning point, I think, for all of us. Uh, people people have been paying attention to the Huffington Post knows that uh, we took our shot at not being a bystander in the Trump wars, and um, we missed the shot mm-hmm. pretty badly. Well, you tried, you guys tried, and I honor the attempt to not play the game that unfortunately gave Trump the foothold in our national consciousness, or second foothold, maybe, if you want to, in it. Um, If you consider, okay, drop that metaphor. What happened with Trump, I think, and and what uh, the Huffington Post tried to not be a part of, um, was that before he became an actual campaign, which he is now, he was just a guy saying shit. Yeah, basically. And but the but the political media has no other way to cover someone besides as a candidate. Like they treated him with the structure of campaign journalism and effectively turned him into a candidate when he was still just a guy who who should have been like do we cover everything Alex Jones says? No. Do we cover everything Rush Limbaugh says? Do we cover? Uh, we don't cover everything that Vermin Supreme says. Right. So you know? I mean, it, 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 I, I, I hate to make the comparison between a good man like Vermin <laughs> Supreme and Donald Trump. Vermin, I apologize. You're welcome on our show anytime. You're a good man. But because we have the structure of campaign journalism, where you do, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, we're going to treat his supporters. We're going to go out and interview people at his rallies. This box containing campaign, you know, got built 
and then he put a campaign inside of it. Does that? And and, and, and you guys and refused, and you guys were, were trying to not play that game, to try not to have to have a part in the structure of that journalism. Yeah, even even though it kind of kneecapped us in a lot of different yeah. ways, um, we were willing to do that because we just didn't want to play any part of it. And unfortunately, uh, we got you know we've been we've all been dragged into it. I have to say that like to my mind, uh, what I missed about Donald Trump, and you know I'll probably I'll never make this mistake again, assuming that norms. <laughs> are at work in the world. Uh, to me, Donald Trump was a celebrity. He belonged in the entertainment section. Uh, and I thought that he would still be bound by the certain kind of gravitational pull that all that keep all celebrities tethered somewhere in orbit. We don't always like celebrities. Some of them are manifest dicks. We have trouble with them that do scandalous things. And yet... The goal of a celebrity is always to try to hit those four quadrants. That's how they make money. They hit four quadrants. So they have to maintain a certain level of reasonable access to what we would call goodwill, public goodwill. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump threw that aside and has run essentially, you know, a skinhead rally. I, I, I think yeah. I think this is what has been been hard for the political press to wrap their heads around is is that Donald Trump is has since he started running the campaign whatever we want to call it, whether it was a real campaign at the beginning or not, since he started talking and saying that he was running for president, he's essentially been running, I think I wrote a column about this in our, in our entertainment section a few months ago, saying that he was a plutocrat populist from hell. But that right. was actually a nice way of saying he was running as a very traditional fascist demagogue. Mm-hmm. And it has now become really clear that he's just saying, let's discriminate against people who are Muslim, don't even let them into the country. I mean, that's, that it, it's very clear that that's, that's the playbook that he's, he's going by. And that's not a playbook that Americans are used to seeing in, in our politics, but it's something that's become very common in Europe uh, over the last, de- you know, frankly, the last decade, but was also very common in Europe 50 years ago. Uh, and it's, it's a common <laughs> response to economic, di- economic downturns, that people right. get angry, and this is, this is one way to exploit that anger. Um, and I feel like the, the constant discussion in the political media between insider candidates and outsider candidates really elides that, that th- there's a different distinction that's going on. And, and in fact, all of the other Republican candidates are making a play for the same vote and trying to harness that same anger. They just don't want to look as mean and petty as Donald Trump does when they do that. Right. Um, I think that's been you watch you watch the campaign and it's it's you 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 see people like you know morning joe making a big show <laughs> about donald trump about about shutting down donald trump the other day for at least a commercial break they totally just didn't let him talk through a commercial <laughs> right. break. Right. And, they, and they, they were willing to admit that <laughs> Starbucks and Coca-Cola meant more to them than Donald Trump right. did in that one slim instance. Capitalism will win out. It yeah, all co- <laughs> but then you watch MSNBC for the rest of the day, and they're playing that clip over yeah. and over and over and over again. You, know, the, the, you don't defeat somebody like Donald Trump with good arguments mm-hmm. and good put-downs. Like that's that doesn't work. People like him because pe- because because he's a guy who gets on TV and gets to say stuff. That's well, it. That's the appeal. And also, he benefits from the ready-made narrative that the liberal media just lies and makes up stuff and is and is against him. Right? Like that. Like I think it, he is a beneficiary of the dysfunctional political conversation we've been having for the last twenty years. You know, because he gets to go to that ready-made narrative right. that they already believe that the political that the liberal media is out to get him. And he gets no. to exploit the fact that the media is so often a bystander. You know, yeah. it's, he he makes he makes these outrageous comments about 
banning Muslims from entering the co- country. And cable news response is to say, well, Tell us what your cable news So Donald Trump says this, but we've heard of this thing called a constitution. Now to talk about the constitution is a, is a guy from Harvard Law School. Tell us about this constitution. This is, this is what oh, fucking pissed me off so much all the time. The Don Lemoning of all news. Well, that and also, like, it's not a fucking plan or a policy to ban Muslims. Right? right? Like, that's just a fucking, like, taking a shit on the Constitution. Like, that's not, like, a, you know what I mean? A policy has some, is something you can enact, you know? Well, and you've seen and this like, with, the, with the way he sort of walks it back, like, oh, yeah, I'd let my friends call, come in, as you point call out. call it a policy dignifies it in a way that, like, in the same way that t- having to go to a constitutional expert to get a quote about it, which is if Kelly Ripa tried to get Donald Trump to talk about the constitutionality of his argument. It, it, she, she's not, as far as I know, a constitutional scholar, but she seemed to recognize inherently that there was a problem <laughs> yes. with this religious not... Test. <laughs> with religious yes. test. We don't... He shouldn't be allowed on the air. Like, we don't... Mm. And you see, even then, then, we, then we stray into territory where are we censoring him? Uh, it's, it's, it's really difficult. It's, it's, he's created diffi- a difficult problem. Um, and we are now, to be clear, we are now covering him as a politics figure in at the Huffington yes. Post. Yeah, so yeah. I, I regret. I regret that. I regret that we kind of Deshaun Jacksoned our our shot. I mean, um, the the problem is that covering him as entertainment for us. I think it at, at first it was okay when he was just saying outrageous things and insulting other Republican candidates. I mean, he would say like, "I've had it up to here with Rand Paul," and like hold his hand up to like his shoulder and be like, "Haha, Rand Paul is short." All right, I got it. Like, all right. Entertainment. But when he's doing openly fascist demagoguery and talking about religious tests for Americans, it's it's not entertaining anymore. Um, And there's there's got to be some way to denounce that and acknowledge that it's happening and acknowledge that people in the public sphere are responding to it in some way, which is probably the most frightening part of it. I think maybe one thing to do is to do what you repeat and 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 amplify a point that you made earlier, which is that we've seen this in Europe. Um, we've seen the rise of the fascist right in Europe as a as a political force, yeah. and that is what is ha- happening here. And um, and that he's fu- he's also not is not metaphorically at all. He is doing ISIS's you know bidding. Basically, <laughs> yeah. yes. Like this is what ISIS wants from the West. They want to leave ca- Muslims with no choice but the caliphate. They, that is exactly right. right. Yeah. Um, you guys probably you should have on if you haven't already had on Will McCants. He's a Brookings Institution Institute scholar on ISIS. He covers their social media. He covers their propaganda. Like he's sent, he's been sending me like tweets from ISIS members that cite, you know, things that other things that the people on the right in Europe have said. And he says they ha- he hasn't yet seen it on the message boards, like people talking about Trump. But that's going to happen, mm-hmm. right? No, like literally, some ISIS member is going to do like a GIF. Of Donald Trump on whatever, you know, ISIS Reddit there is. Like, I don't really know what they have. I think it's called Reddit. I think it's called Reddit. (laughs) (laughs) You know? And it'll be like, and it'll be proof that, you know, yeah, you have no choice. You're not wanted in the, you're not wanted in the West. You You, you have to come home to the the ISIS paradise Uh, and learn to live with us. It's not always easy for, it's, it's a terrible thing to have done. It's a really terrible thing to have done for a lot of different reasons, not the least of which is that we desperately need to attract some kind of Sunni proxy group to help us fight ISIS. And when you're talking like Donald Trump, it doesn't in exactly endear people to us. In fact, a lot of people on the ground in Iraq think that we're, we and ISIS are in cahoots. So there's a whole thorny mess to get through. He's not helping. Yeah. 
uh, it's going to be, <laughs> I got to tell you, it's, it's like it, it, right now it's like being in a world with no gravity. The, um, every time I see him, every time I see him in a debate, it's a little bit like watching a hallucination. Like mm-hmm. I can't really fathom what's going on. And it's because like I said before, um, I'm used to a certain amount of norms. There, there is politics. this, there's this way in which, in which the cultural conversation that we have around politics has just become much, much more toxic. That, that was not something that I, that I honestly expected to happen. I thought he was going to be a much more potent candidate than people were giving him credit for early on. Um, because he was running by a fascist playbook that was working in other parts of the world. But I did not expect the just general toxicity of the way we talk about about politics and about about each other as human beings in the United States to be degraded this far. I mean, it, this is a basic part of the Republican messaging now. And the Democrats are going around on their high horse like, look, we don't like Trump. We're so great. Like, <laughs> like that's an amazing <laughs> achievement. <laughs> um, I agree. To stick with this topic, just through the end, I want to ask, uh, maybe it's an important question that you're alluding to, is Donald Trump has said a lot of things that we've called outrageous, we've called um, flamboyant. Um, I would make the case, and there's not a lot of Republicans going to appreciate me saying this, but I would make the case that he's invented very little in the conversation. He's perhaps wrapped it in different packaging, but I don't tend to disassociate. We've had candidates talk about banning Muslims. We've had candidates talk about building walls. We've had candidates talk about deporting Mexicans. Um, And I tend to think, and I'm sorry to say this, but I tend to think a lot of the candidates' responses to Donald Trump on the right is not so much, you were wrong and here's why. It is, what you just said makes us look terrible. Yeah. Oh, that's completely what it is. And if, I mean, you, I mean, I don't, I'm not breaking news to anyone who's, who's, you know, savvy enough to be listening to this podcast, but Ted Cruz explicitly, you know, decided not to go after him. Rand Paul went after him only to say, well, I also suggested something very similar, you know, but not as bad somehow, <laughs> right. you know, and, and Ted Cruz uh, basically also has the same thing. He says that we should let in Christians, which is the same thing as banning <laughs> Right. It's still a religious test. It's, it's a religious test. It's the same thing. Ben Carson said, you know, compared <laughs> compared uh, Syrian refugees to rabid dogs. I mean, I mean Ben Carson <laughs> also said, we need something that vets everyone coming into the country. And I was like, Ben, it's called the fucking customs agency. We've <laughs> had it for a long time. You need to get a fucking grip, Ben Carson, and learn about something, anything, anything. It's called the fucking customs. Look it up. Look it up. Wikipedia, that shit. Anyway, the, the, um, the, it, to me, I don't know. It's it's I'm I am completely this is, you know, I've been covering politics for a long time, longer than I care to figure out. And I do feel like this is the first time I've felt at a loss. You know, I I think this is what you say. You feel like you're having an hallucination. Um, I've I wrote early on something that I guess I will. I'm not especially proud to say think I think is still relevant, which is that what Trump is doing is. Some people had said early on that maybe Trump would have a hot mic moment that would undo him, like sort mm-hmm. of a, a, a face in the crowd yeah, right. moment. But that's not going to happen because he's not – he doesn't censor himself. There's no other side of him to see. Like his hot – he has a hot mic on all the time. Like he yeah, lives hot constantly mic. constantly happening. Yeah. Right? What, who, the problem is who's having the hot mic moment in this, in this period is actually the media because we don't know what to do. And we're having to sort of say out loud all this stuff about the process that normally we would be doing without thinking. 
And so the public is getting to see a lot of the flaws in political coverage, and it's not making them trust us anymore. No. Yeah. <laughs> mm. uh, life is pain. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Adriano Ucero and Peter James Callahan, with technical assistance from Christine Canetta and spiritual guidance from Golden Globe nominee Caitlin Bogucki. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week we were joined by podcaster and writer Anna Marie Cox and Wisconsin Congressman Reed Ribble, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Samantha Lockman, and Shaheen Nazirapur. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store while you're there. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, thanks for listening, and we miss you already. 